صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنرز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 اي Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English-language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Palestine Remembered. We've got an international show for you. We're joined from Palestine and from the United States. But first, my co-host today, good morning, Janine Harani. Hi, Nasser. How are you going? You are speaking to us from the homeland. I am. I am. Against all odds, I've been um, let into the homeland. So I've been here for a few days now, um, and I'm coming to you from Haifa. Beautiful, beautiful. Now, listeners, because it's radio, you can't tell, but Janine is actually glowing. So welcome, welcome, Janine. Janine's joined me because we're dealing with a couple of absolutely magnificent human beings. I'm going to say they're magnificent human beings because these are two outstanding intellectuals, doctors, professors, academics. I'm going to introduce you to them. Now, this is Palestine Remembered. Palestine is a human cause. All humans can be moved by Palestine, active in Palestine. And we're joined by a couple of Lebanese friends, colleagues, fellow great human beings. We have Assistant Professor Lara Sheha, who is a Professor of Clinical Psychology at the George Washington University Professoral Psychology Program. Her work is on decolonial struggles, as well as power, race, class, and gender constructs, and dynamics within psychoanalysis. Lara is the Secretary and President-Elect of the Society for Psychoanalysis and Psychoanalytic Psychology, and is the chair of the Teachers Academy of the American Psychoanalytic Association. Joining her is her husband, Stephen Sheehan, who is the Sultan Qaboos Professor of Middle East Studies and Director of Decolonizing Humanities Project at William and Mary, where he's also Professor of Arabic Studies in the Asian and Middle Eastern Studies Program, Arabic Program, and Asian and Pacific Islander American Studies Program. His research is in the intellectual and cultural history of the Arab world, Islamophobia in the United States and Europe, and liberation through liberation thought and praxis in the context of colonialism, racism, capitalism, sexism, and cis-heteronormativity. Amazing bios, Lara and Stephen, and which is why we've got Janine here, uh, a fellow smart person to help me with this interview. Welcome. <laughs> Yeah, hello, Thank you. So thank you. And Janine, what a, what a wonderful, wonderful surprise. Thank yeah, you. Thanks for coming. Well, thanks for standing in the brain line for two or three <laughs> times and not leaving anything rest for the rest of us. <laughs> Can I ask you first, what brought you to Palestine? Well, first of all, shukran Nasir. And, you know, I, I think our, our hearts are always in Palestine. So it's leading with radical love and revolutionary love. Hey, Jebna on Palestine, you know. Um, for me, was born and raised in Lebanon and was born to a family where the Palestinian cause was central to that. And then went to AUB as an undergrad, American University of Beirut. So the struggle, the Palestinian struggle felt alive. And even though I was born into a family with that, going to AUB was a new 
chapter of that. It meant learning what the responsibility of wearing the hatta was. What does it mean to wear the kufi? What does it mean to stand in the line of revolutionaries from Lebanon and Palestine together working for uh, liberation for Palestine, but also for the entire Arab world? We believe in a pan-Arab revolution and Palestine is the center of that. So it felt only natural for us as Lebanese to extend that responsibility to our academic work as well. And for us, our academic work is not separated from our struggle, from our, our activism, from our revolutionary sort of imaginaries about what is possible for us. And so um, that that brought us to Palestine this time around. And it brought us to Palestine as two people who uh, have different academic routes, but who share that revolutionary sort of political alignment. And Istvin comes to um, psychoanalysis from an academic route, and I come to psychoanalysis from a clinical route. And we thought that bringing those two things together, we create a lockdown on it and say, okay, what does it mean then to kind of seize power from academia and from clinical work and say, this is what it means to be committed to the work of liberating Palestine uh, in our lifetime. It's not, this is not a fantasy for the future. This is a present day struggle that we're engaged in. Yeah, I mean, uh, of course, we'll be seeing throughout the next couple of minutes or whatever time we have together that Lara will be taking all the good words. <laughs> and it's hard, she's a hard act to follow. I, I think she articulated <laughs> a lot of, of, of my of some of the reasons how I came to Palestine. I uh, actually, as am an Arab American, I was born and raised in uh, the United States. My um, uh, grandparents came over, or my ex-great-grandparents came over. Um, and so I, my road to Palestine is slightly different in as much as <clears throat> on the one hand, you know, as an Arab American, I was racialized as an Arab. I was racialized as a, as a brown um, subject of uh, the settler colony now known as United States. And I just also want to acknowledge that we are coming in from Pamunkey uh, Confederacy territory in the state now known as Virginia. And I was raised in um, Lenape, uh, Lape land in the state now known as Pennsylvania. Um, and I think, you know, if one is an Arab American, uh, you are subjected, especially if you're, you know, living in the 80s and the 90s, um, to a certain form of racialization that actually comes to a head in 9-11, but I was far radicalized and racialized way before that. Um, Palestine was <clears throat> always alive in, in my house. Um, we, I had a mother who was like, you know, calling up senators and you know in the 1970s and protesting about or or the local television um you know channel saying why does it say jerusalem is the capital of israel um and uh so it's always been um quite alive in my family my mother is uh has gave me my sort of political education as, as a as someone who's young but i also think you know going and being reintroduced and rematriated to to the dan um, over the past, say, you know, 30 years, um, I've also come to realize that um, Palestine, of course, has to be an Arab issue. Uh, when I found out more about some of my cousins, um, I have cousins who were um, dispossessed, who were thrown out of um, Jaffa in 1948 uh, themselves, um, because the idea of Palestine, of course, we, we fight for its liberation, but we also understand that what separates us in Palestine 
front, uh, in Lebanon from Palestine is also Sykes-Picot um, and colonialism. And so we do fight for the liberation of Palestine. That is our primary fight right now. But we also understand that Thawr Arabi runs through Palestine, but it also includes the um, the liberation of all Arab countries against their oligarchical, you know, corrupt um, regimes, whether that's in Lebanon or Emirat or Saudi or Saudi or Iraq or Masr or Maghreb. Uh, we do believe that... Um, Palestine gives us a model for the liberation of all, 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 all the Arab world. Well, we're loving you, Gar, so you can come back. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like if you think about the Zionism, like they're so far reaching and they've reached across the whole region. And like, if you think about the occupation of South Lebanon, like how do you separate the occupation of South Lebanon from the occupation of Palestine, from the occupation of the Golan Heights? And it is like, it does become, or it has become, like, you know, a struggle, like, like you said, Stefan, like a, a pan-Arabist struggle. And I genuinely believe that like nowhere in the region will be free until Palestine is free or like until Zionism and like the Israeli settler colonial project is dismantled. Like there's no way that Egypt will be free or Lebanon will be free or any of these countries will be free while Israel still exists. And I think, I don't know, Nasser, like my mom is Lebanese and your mom is Lebanese. And I feel like sometimes they're like honorary Palestinians. And I, I do feel like the cause is a pan-Arabist cause. Well, absolutely. When Palestine's free, the whole world will be free. Mm. When you think about the structures that are in play to oppress and to keep this outpost, this colonial white settler state oppressing an Indigenous people for this long, how much effort is going in there? That's the dominant. Israel's the dominant. Israel falls over not just the Middle East, South America, the Africa's the world is a far better place once we destroy Western imperialist control of the world. I would just say two things. You know, I think when we went to Palestine, we were struck by that. And I had been going back to Palestine for, for 20 years or, you know, 15 years. And then, but I think this project actually just made me that much closer to it. I developed relationships that I didn't have there before. And I, I, I just want to say that when we went there, and I think, Laura, you can talk more about this, but like the intimacy that we felt, the immediate intimacy that we felt going in there, speaking with a Lebanese accent, from Palestinian, wherever, whether it's in Khalil or whether it's in Ishmael and Jalil, people, you know, glommed onto us. And to when they talked to us, it was as if that is the relationship that should be exist. And that is also the future that we work for, yeah. right? I think as Lebanese, and I think you said something, Janine, is very, very uh, important. You know, one thing Lara and I do sh share also is both of us have been subjected to Zionist violence directly. And not just at the border, not just being harassed, but through bombs, you know, through invasion, through dispossession. We both were evacuated. We were both under under Israeli bombardment. So I, I, I would never prioritize that over the Palestinian struggle, of course. But I think that also allows us to understand, as you said, Zionism has a particular place, as you both said, in the Middle East. And I think we don't want to overvalue it. And I think he's alluding to it, Nasser, which is Israel is a basically an elaborate puppet state for an American and, and European imperialism. Mm -hmm. And that's why they're so invested in it. And yeah. that's why it's the, the revolution in Lebanon is a Palestinian revolution. They guided us in 1975, right? The Lebanese civil war. We would learn for the Palestinians. They were there as our comrades because they could see the work that the Palestine, that the Lebanese government was doing for American imperialism mm -hmm. and, and, and the Zionist entity. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, settler colony sees settler colony sees settler colony where you're at, <laughs> not it, right? right? Like this is this the logics are the same, and this is why I think you know our work is heavily Fanonian in that sense, in terms of can we look at the logics that repeat themselves? And when you see a logics and you see a mechanics, wherever it shows up, it's easier to follow, and then you find your footing and you find your you know your center. And the center is Palestine because it's a living, breathing, current day instantiation. Like it's it's almost absurd to be an academic that like studies Fanon, teaches Fanon, and then you nothing can prepare you for Palestine when you go there. You're like the mechanics are like right in front of you. And so to what you were saying, Nasid, the amount of energy that goes into it for us, it was also about how much psychic energy right, goes into disavowing in everyday life, like pretending this isn't a settler colony, <laughs> right? And you go there and I'm like, this is what I tell him all the time. Palestine brought me back to Lebanon. I have felt alienated from Lebanon for so long for, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is like the, the, the horrid toxicity in which our warlord leaders right, have put us and the violence done onto Palestini in our name come in, right? But when I, when I went to Palestine, it brought me back to Lebanon because the way people were relating to us brought me back to that revolutionary struggle that we don't, that is never centered in Lebanon, right? Like George Abdullah is not taught to us about like these, these folks existed and fought and they fought together but that's not something that's like at the front and of the consciousness right unless you're obviously leftist which we are <laughs> but Palestine brought me back but the most important thing for me was we were going and, and speaking about Haifa Janine right we're driving our our friend Cesar Hakim who's in Bethlehem who runs um, an amazing community mental health center in, in Bethlehem was taking us to Haifa. And this was the first time that I had gone into what is now known as the settler colony of Israel, 1948 borders. And we're driving around, we're driving and and we usually take public transportation. So this is also the first time that we were driving on apartheid roads, right? And I'm looking around and I said to Istvan, I was just like, they don't even, like they don't know anything about this land because these buildings don't belong here. Right. Yeah. Put these these atrocities over top of land. And I'm looking instead. I'm looking at like the rocks and I'm looking at the 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 trees and I'm saying this is Lebanon. I see mm. it. because These lands belong to us. Palestine and Lebanon look similar. We share the rocks. We share the trees and Nehna driving through. We can see that. But the settler comes in and has no, it's like a rock is just a rock and I'll just put a, you know, a European fucking white house. Yeah. Interesting you say that because we drove from Jerusalem to Haifa today, like during the day today. And we were driving through like the city that is now known as Tel Abib. And um, there were all these like high rises everywhere. And my partner was like, why did they bother building these high rises? Like when we return, they're all going to be gone. And it was just like, They've invested so much in like building all of this infrastructure that like is very soon going to be dismantled. And then we arrived in Haifa and we were walking to meet some friends and we passed some olive trees. And he was explaining to me about how like the reason why 
the olive tree like kind of patterns are so complicated at their at their root or at their base is because like the older the olive tree is you know the more um big it looks or the more complicated the patterns of the of the roots look at its base and like there's no way that like settlers would ever understand the patterns of of an olive tree or like I know Nadra Shalhoub who Kevor Kian who you guys you know reference a lot in your book recently spoke about how like when Palestinian kids play hide and seek in the streets of Jerusalem like they know the streets so well they they always are playing hide and seek in the streets whereas when settler kids would never play hide and seek because they don't know the streets the way our kids know the streets yeah. and it's interesting to think about when you go through like how manufactured it is versus like the nature of design and 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 the reality of what it is to be indigenous to the land um it yes. really goes to who belongs there and who doesn't belong there why don't we talk a little bit about your book because it's an amazing book based on everything that I've been able to consume with my limited RAM and uh, capacity uh, <laughs> running at 10 megahertz the thing that struck me is that the context of western discourses around post traumatic stress disorder an event occurred but in a, in a palestine context there's no peace and the west is trying to deliver these colonial orientalist narratives and solutions mm-hmm. onto mm-hmm. something without mm-hmm. yeah of course and you know i think in in some ways we can't be surprised part of what my work is 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 critiquing our field and and looking at our field from the inside and seeing how our field replicates and acts as an arm of power for the state right and it's it is invested in a concept like PTSD because PTSD is sanitized it's depoliticized it creates victims without victimizers and magically these victims can have treatment that sort of uh, puts bookends around their suffering. And then if they don't get better, it's their fault. Something's wrong with them, right? There's something constitutively like missing if somebody doesn't get over their trauma, let alone, by the way, when we start to go into insurance companies and pharmaceuticals and all, like it's a larger, this isn't even a conspiracy, it's just capitalism and imperialism, right? Right, so it's very convenient. But where I sort of, you know, take aim as a clinician and where we take aim in terms of the settler colony is how are these things then weaponized, right? To decontextualize and depoliticize and defang a political struggle. Mental health is a political issue. When you have people under settler colonialism and apartheid, how do you delink psychic health from the oppressive conditions in which they live? The concept of PTSD tries to do that by saying, well, let me get a manual and sort of look at this and let me do it this particular way. And then the the social and political world shouldn't matter because I'm attending to the individual. And that's the part where like you problematize this and you say, if there isn't a post, what does that sort of orient us towards? And the only answer is settler colonialism. But uh, many psychologists and psychoanalysts in the field don't want to hear that. Because it implicates them. How do you, in good conscience, say that you are aligned with psychic health if you're not in the street struggling for liberation struggles and for Palestine? And that's the conflict they end up in. And that, for me, is our our interest was also, if you want to use a methodology, a theory, then let it cash out on its promises. And if it doesn't, you don't get to claim that this is something that is helpful. And we will take you to task and say, 
you are creating harm because you are gaslighting a people and also you are lending legitimacy to a state project, which is what this, right? So we have this example of one of our, our dear friends and comrades, Yoad Ghanadri Hakim, who worked for Save the Children, and she's given us permission. It's in the book. Um, and, you know, Save the Children is an NGO. It came in. It has a sort of PTSD model that they're working with. And she was at the head of it. And this same model was used across several clinics across historic Palestine. And after a year, and it was sort of working with kids who had seen their homes being demolished. And after a year, she did a sort of post study and recognized that these kids were actually more traumatized now. So she wrote a report and was just like, this is not working here. And we need to end Save the Children just buried the report. Her analysis and our analysis is why didn't it work is because the models we have to treat PTSD as a construct are individual models. And what that does in Palestine is also rip people out of their communal processes, which is enacted through Sumud, of processing the demolished house as a part of a larger project of dispossession and of uh, oppression. And instead, what they were saying was allowing these kids to process this trauma without like recognizing who was doing this trauma to them. And so the kids got like more flashbacks. They got actually worse because like Rita Jackman reminds us, when people are connected to a political struggle, they're actually healthier psychically. And so when you rip these kids out of that and start to be like, yeah, this is just happening arbitrarily. Like, oh, I don't know. Your house just fell apart, right? It got demolished just by a magical force. Not the fact that you're like, there's a state operation actually that's dispossessing you. They got worse. And so we have a responsibility to speak to that and to say, no, let's actually be clear on what's happening here. Something else I book was about this whole concept of like how the individualization or the atomization of trauma in Palestine actually like undermines popular resistance and undermines like engaging in, you know, if you have like individuals who are traumatized, then they are seen as individuals and not seen as like a popular collective that's resisting against, you know, a settler colonial state. I don't know if you want to speak to that, Lara, but it does feature quite heavily in the book. Yeah. Also, I'll jump in and just say, if you look at trauma, it's something called trauma studies now. I mean, that's how um, institutionalized it is. And, and and 25 years ago, you really couldn't find trauma and the word Palestine in the same sentence, right? Mm-hmm. Trauma studies was largely generated by, you know, people studying the effects of the, of the, the Holocaust. And so it's grown, I think, part, largely in the late 80s and 90s. And Palestinians have sort of been inaugurated thank you very much into being worthy tra- trauma victims right but of course if you when you look at the language as, as you're saying Benin, you know, that's the language is they're victims of conflict <laughs> they're victims of as if it's a a natural disaster it's also super I- important to note since Lara talked about the NGOs that NGOs will not give money or or donor states won't give money to the NGOs if certain language is not it, it used, right. right? So if you say liberation struggle, if you say Palestinian this or that. If you say um, Palestinian. If you say Palestinian often. Right. Uh, I do a lot to say Palestinian and occupied uh, West Bank to some to donors sometimes, right. but there's a lot of language that you're not allowed to use. And you have to say things like, you know, this sort of decontextualized, anonymized words, right? You know, that right. they have no, they could be anywhere. 
And it does, it's not that there's an occupation or apartheid or settler colonialism. It's just that somehow my house fell down upon me because of a conflict situation, right? So at one level, there's been movement for Palestinians, right? Because they're now worthy victims. But of course, the more and not, Palestinians are Arabs half the time, right? And they're Arab when they become victims, they're Arab victims. And so I think for me, I think about PTSD as producing something. And what it produces, as you're saying, it atomizes. But what what is the effect of that atomization? It's the effect of now we have a series of traumatized victims who live in this place called the occupied territories, because they're not anyplace else. And mm-hmm. only and they'll only be in area A or and maybe B, if you're lucky, right? Trauma stops there. And it's a creation of these individuals who can, and if we if we do PTS treatment well enough, we can make them autonomous, but we're not making them independent. And that's the same language that the Zionist state wants to use for a, a, a peace process, right? They want the, the Bantu stands to be self-governing, but they don't want them to be independent, an independent state. So what you want, what the PTSD paradigm really creates is a bunch of individuals who could be self-governing, but with no real character and God forbid any sort of ability to will themselves into an independent state, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Let alone claim, land. you know, mm-hmm. cl- exactly claim title, uh, heritage title to that the land in which they were born. Right, right, right. I do want to say that you were saying peace in scare quotes. Yes, I was. <laughs> because it's it a radio show. Yeah. <laughs> we don't actually think that's what's happening. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And then I love this because this comes back to the indigenous who's there and who's a settler and who's indigenous, right? And what an indigenous person can see and connect to and what a settler can never connect to. So that atomization becomes also necessary to sustain a settler project. Because when you atomize, like that's the biggest fear is when you bring together people in a collective, when you have folks having claim to the land, when you have folks, um, you know, being clear on what's happening, not confused, that is PTSD becomes targeted, a way to confuse people about what's happening. And this is Fanon 101, right? Franz Fanon, who tells us like therapists become confusion mongers. Because when you start asking questions, people have the might get confused and sort of start to doubt themselves the same way that atomization happens and then lose specificity too, right? Mm. There is a specificity to Palestine. There's a specificity to the Palestinian cause. That's why we're always careful. It's always interesting to us because people assume we're Palestinian because we fight for the Palestinian Right, struggle and Palestini and, and we're 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 clear about our liberate our liberatory sort of and and revolutionary um aims. But that's also part of it is that what we cannot lose the specificity of Palestine and Palestini, and that's what PTSD does. Nasir come in to go back to it, is it makes a mass of undifferentiated people, all of whom meet the category for a diagnostic label. So somebody in Palestine can be the same as an Aboriginal, uh, an Aboriginal person in Australia or New Zealand uh, or in Canada or in the United States. And they lose the specificity of that. Right. 
they might share our logics of settler colonialism, but the specificity of that history is actually really important. And PTSD entirely erases that. Is there pushback against this? If I'm a, a psychoanalyst, psychiatrist, therapist, and I've been treating based on the book ABCD, ABCD, Bob's okay, uh, I can move to my next patient. And here you are saying, hold on a second, doing this, you're actually harming, you're losing the specificity of disconnecting from community. What are the white people saying? (laughs) A whole lot, as they usually do. (laughs) You know, I think there's, there's a way in which some people see what the actual implications are. When we take aim and we say there's a real implication, like we're saying, this is not abstract, just like Fanon's fight was not abstract. It was like, you know, there's a bunch of people who are always like, who is he really talking about violence? And on on the chapter called On Violence, yes, he's talking about decolonization. And this is what it, but, and also we understand because systems are violent, that's that's part of it. But there's a real investment in reality bending, Nasip, to your question, right? And so there's a couple of ways that people react. On the one hand, they understand the implications and they are incredibly angry and sort of double down. And and we've heard it all, right? This is a political agenda. This is not real psychology. This is you bringing your politics into it, which is like, yeah, because I'm I'm a human. I'm not a robot. Akid, I've never been unclear about my ideological position. It just happens to be the right one. Thank you. <laughs> so that's part of it, right? Um, and then there's also people who are, I think, actively trying to work through and unlearn the systems in which they were socialized and brought up in. And I do think there's a big you know, group of folks, psychologists, psychoanalysts across the world who are actively and ethically, I will say this, grappling with these ideas, because if we think about these things as systemic, they do have a way of making themselves appear as though they're normative. And so there's an active uh, effort to do that. So our book has been actually very well received because I think folks are seeing mechanics. I can't, the number of times we we talk and folks from all over the world and particularly racialized people are like, that happened to me. Mm-hmm. And they see the P- Palestinian struggle in themselves and they're making those connections because it it's obvious how imperialism works, how settler colonialism, how racism works, all these sorts of things. So there's been a varied response but I think there's also a huge reckoning in the field in general. So the timing is here because people's feet are to the fire. When we have an intifada right now happening in Palestine, right now in this moment, and a, and a massive crackdown, when we have climate catastrophe at the level it is, when we have poverty at levels it is, it, it's time for the field to reckon and say, what's our, what is our role in this? How can we, mm. we can't innocent bystanders like we we are part of the struggle and i think Palestine is an entry point to that we're joined by a gaggle of smart people janine horani from Palestine, but also stefan and lara shiha professors of just super duper caliber i actually had a specific question based on what you just said lara because i feel like something that often comes up is like the notion of disciplines and the notion of areas of expertise or the notions of like professions And I feel like something that's often challenged by Fanon and by your book and like other kind of 
academics is this idea of like the coloniality of disciplines and like that like disciplines are created to kind of like separate you know politics from psychoanalysis as, as the most obvious example and I was wondering if either of you had anything to add about kind of how the way disciplines have been constructed might have led to also um, depoliticization and dehistoricization and decontextualization of psychoanalysis and other disciplines? You know, that's a great question. I mean, that's that's a big, right, because that kind of starts back in, you know, with uh, Saeed's book on Orientalism, right? That is, how do we construct objects of knowledge? So you're absolutely right. And I think someone like me, who's an interdisciplinary scholar, is is always struggling with this. And of course, when then you look at the world and, you know, what, you know, material reality, as we always reference, it's, you know, while I see I could fit into five different disciplines, you know, those, most of those different disciplines will not take me because I, because I do Arab stuff and, and, and I might uh, uh, root my work in largely Arab culture. So where do they put me? They put me in the same department quite often as we study, you know, Egyptology. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I think when you think about the colonial power and think about the, the, the coloniality disciplines, uh, we have to also think about the way they institutionally come to fruition in higher education, right? And so I think, you know, this, this is absolutely true. Higher education, of course, reproduces settler colonial structures and the coloniality of power. In regards to Palestine, it's really interesting because I think just to go back to how people look at Palestine, and it's shocking sometimes because we know that they're allies, but the language that they use sometimes is so bizarrely, I want to say objective and neutral when we add those square, scare quotes again, they were there. Um, you know, there are, quote, scare, you know, objective, unquote, objective, and quote, neutral, and unquote, neutral. But, you know, the, so we they speak in this weird language, sort of like pseudo scientific language of neutrality, but we and we know because we know how to read it as being incredibly sort of, you know, important and testifying to certain political and material realities in Palestine. But on the other hand, you know, they don't they won't end up saying that. Right. Mm -hmm. um, when you look at how funding is given, you can't say, you know, we're going to look at the effects of Zionist settler colonialism on Palestinians from the, the river to the sea, right? You can't do that because funding sources won't let you do that, right? And funding sources then, of course, and that's how departments get along through funding sources. So there's a whole institutional sort of network in which the production of knowledge is controlled through, as you said, the coloniality of power and the colonial disciplines. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think what we try to do also in our work is think about the way in which knowledge is produced from the ground up through the people who in which we talk about whether they're psychologists whether they're artists whether they're militants mm -hmm. they themselves are producing the knowledge um that will be the foundation for the liberation of palestine i think what's amazing about the book was how like the palestinian clinical room but also the palestinian street was like seen as like a site of knowledge production, of theory production. It's like a very like Gramscian concept of like the organic intellectual. I don't know if either of you want to speak about the importance of the Palestinian street as like, you know, thinking about knowledge production outside of just the academy, but also everyday resistance and how that produces knowledge. Yeah. And I think you, it goes back to your question. I love that you didn't say fields, you said disciplines, because mm -hmm. the concept of discipline is precisely what we're people's bodies and minds and what they think and how they think about it are disciplined in particular ways. And higher education is a primary 
outside of that, right? So if we're sort of borrowing from Sarah Ahmad too, about what does it orient you towards and what does it orient you away from? And that is how it orients us away from the street because the street becomes somehow secondary or, oh, this is just like an, an external force coming in and all these ways in which the field disciplines, I, you know, I teach clinicians, doctorate students who are becoming clinicians and the ways that the theory lends itself to have people, even if they're not told outright, feel blasphemous. They literally say, I feel like I'm not being psychoanalytic if I'm not paying attention to just what's happening inside. Well, how does that happen? Right? That is a sort of unconscious dis disciplinary process because it links up us talking about the outside world as though it's an imposition, like we're imposing something. And what I always say to my students, just like in the, this is why it was important in our book, when Cesar talks about sitting with, with a patient in Bethlehem and tear gas comes in, it would be absurd for us to be like, just ignore that. No, that's not the outside world just coming, just floating on in, right? But it, it gets that absurd. It's sort of like, I always tell my students, if you are working, for example, with somebody who is Black, it's not going to come as, as a surprise to them if you note that they're Black. They move through the world as Black people. They understand that racism exists. We're actually doing a far bigger disservice when we don't name these things, because that goes back to Nasser's idea of how much energy goes into displacing these things. But that is the way that we get disciplined. So for us, it was central to say part of working against disciplining in this way in, in the field is also to actively disrupt where we disimagine that psychoanalysis happens. And it's not by chance that we imagine psychoanalysis happens only in the clinic and perhaps only in certain metropoles and perhaps only in certain countries and everywhere else. It's the magnanimity of European psychoanalysis to import psychoanalysis there. And when you have that as the setup, then you miss everywhere that psychoanalysis is happening. And that's what an indigenous Palestinian psychoanalysis really comes through. It's like our comrades, that's why we were like, there is nothing we are teaching these folks. Let's leave that at the door. There is nothing we are importing to the contrary we are there alongside them in community, in liberation struggle, just etching the contours of what they've been doing all along, right? Mm. And for them, that's their everyday life. And so it's the arrogance of the field, like push up against the arrogance of the field to be like, you're naming where psychoanalysis happens and doesn't. And in Palestine, the street is just as important as the clinic, it's just as important as the home. And there are quite a few like indigenous concepts that came up in the book, like the concept of samud, the concept of wa'i. I don't know if either of you want to speak about those and how they lead into psychoanalysis in Palestine. Yeah, you know, it's funny, this also kind of has to do with your previous question too about the street because for example i i wrote a few books before this and i'm one of these sort of like nerdy scholars who is very much obsessed with like written texts and historical documents and archives and stuff like that so for me writing this book was a real challenge right to go and i'm not an anthropologist and i wasn't going to do anthropological research scare quotes um <laughs> or graphic research right and so you know to think about how because again what i know is to not approach the street as an object of knowledge but to understand the street as a place where knowledge is produced and as alara said is we're there to kind of listen 
and at best, and I love the way you said that, sort of give contours to what is being already articulated. Mm-hmm. And when you have concepts like a wa'i or sumud, they're there. That those concepts, sumud, come specifically out of it is a that term is specifically comes out of a revolutionary culture <laughs> that was formed as a revolutionary culture over the past 70 years right mm. so I think when we tend to uh, what what american what westerners and western academics love is they love the big name right we have to we have to like if derrida said samud would be a thing but here it is like every palestinian collectively is the is the Derrida. It's the it's 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 Palestinian history and struggle that collectively forged this word and then also enacted it and gave us contour or contours or or sort of like fleshed it out more and more for us. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, we when you hear these things over and over again, and then when you can also start to hear them and then also see what that means, you put they give you the language to identify what you're seeing. Yeah. It's uh, you know, it blows your mind. And that's that's yeah. what we're we you know I'm happy that you, you saw that in the book. But it also loops us back onto Lebanese because Arabi is the central piece here too, right? What we've seen for so many years is folks who don't speak Arabi, who have nothing to do with the cook, come in, do an ethnographic research, help, and then leave. And what happened, I don't know that we were and we could have anticipated what emerged, and that is truly a decolonial feminist method, right? Is you go in and what emerged was not what we we can't anticipate it, we can't sort of, you know, foreshadow it. What emerged in the space of Arabi was something, you know, I dare I say, like a magical coming out of that, because for the first time we were in these spaces. And that's what I mean by Palestine brought me back to Dibnin to go there and for a political alignment, also speak Arabi. That was important. And that's why Sumud and there's why and there's Nafis, because that goes deep. And that has a shared history. And that's to your, your archival research, like these concepts of nafis and being interested in interiority and these questions, these are not an import from the West or from Europe, right? Our people have been doing this for centuries. So it's also relocating and centralizing it back where it belongs. But Arabi was an important part of that, is going back to that and and refusing a translation process, whether it's from Abri or from English, right? It's, it's Arabi that's spoken. And that's the central piece here. Forgive me if this is in the book and, you know, as a Palestinian chauvinist, yeah, because we invented everything. Have we, you know, morphed a new way for our communities to cope? Because I can tell you as a, as a Palestinian, you know, whether it's in a lobbying and sharing an experience and, you know, momentarily crying and sitting there with, you know, wonderful allies who, you know, walk out of the room and go, thank you for sharing that. And two seconds later, I'm okay. Uh, and then moving on. On the ground, whether the tear gas is coming through a, a session with a with a child and, and their the clinician, has something evolved there? Are we better at treating it, working with it, based on those concepts? You had enough. I you know I don't want to de-exclusivize Palestine. I think there's a couple of things going on, and one of which is that I wish we could say that all Palestinians have a revolutionary consciousness that would be essential in fighting off the brutal effects of Zionist settler colonialism. This isn't the case, unfortunately. Colonialism is powerful. Mm. Um, 
when we talk about when we critique the trauma discourse, we know that trauma happens, violence happens, people are being broken, people are hurting. But I think there's also something within Palestine that is not unique necessary to Palestine, but hopefully it is endemic to this anti-colonial struggle. And so when I'm reading works from colonial Africa and reading about the anti-colonial struggle there, or Central America and South America, or East Asia and Vietnam, we understand that, that a revolutionary ideology and creating a revolutionary culture, that is a muqawama, right? The muqawama, the resistant itself, resistance itself, is the bulk work against the violence psychic and social, that is how your communities are, 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 are disintegrated, um, so psychic and social and physical, against colonial violence. And that is was the case in Vietnam, and that's why they won. You know, it's the case in Ghana, this is where they won. It's the case in Angola, which is why they won, right? It's the case in, you know, Cuba, and and we can... Algeria. Algeria, and we can yeah. go down the line. And so I do think that Palestine offers the roadmap for its own liberation and its own mental health. Mm-hmm. But again, it's, it's, it is the struggle. It's called a muqawama because it is a nidad. It's a struggle, you know? Well, I feel so much better because everybody thinks I'm crazy. Now I know because I'm Palestinian, I'm actually not crazy because I'm part of the resistance. And, and I'm going to I'm gonna be It's okay. reality testing, um, Nasser. Well, that's the thing. It's true. <laughs> no, do, all joking aside, they think that, you know, they say that, oh, you know what? You know, it's okay, it's there, except reality. But that's what they, that it's not reality. Palestine is a reality. Right. No, yes. Palestine is the reality. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. You guys are amazing and we could talk forever. I just want to close by thanking our esteemed co-host today, Janine Horani from Haifa, home where she belongs. I said to her yesterday when she was explaining that she was struggling, uh, with the struggle she went through to get in, I said, you know, as a single woman, you pose a double threat. You know, you're single, so you could get married there. And B, you know, you could breed. So you're a demographic double time bomb. This is why. In fact, it's getting easier for me to go mm. uh, because I'm older you're now and out. less likely. To, mm. I'm aging out as a challenging uh, human being. Professors, tell me, please, that you're going to have about 48 children because <laughs> you're both very, very, very smart and both very pretty. And as a fellow human... <laughs> We need to have smart, pretty people. <laughs> Yalla. <laughs> I've already spoken to Jean. We need, she knows No, job. we need as many demographic threats as we can get. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're a handful. <laughs> we need more, baby. We need more. Because the dummies and the bad people are outbreeding us, huh? So, Yalla. Congratulations on your work. Thank you so very much for joining us. And uh, thank, thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for staying hey. up. Hey, well, what a surprise. We look forward to speaking to you again. Listeners, thanks for listening to Palestine Remembered. Remember to share the podcast, tell your friends, and remember there's never been a better time for a free Palestine.